Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're discussing the author John le Carre and learning about collecting his books. Our guest is Stephen Ritterman who joins us from New York. Stephen has a collection of more than 300 John le Carre books including first editions, signed copies, galleys and variants. Le Carre, who died in 2020, is best known for his spy novels, particularly The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Le Carre wrote from a position of experience, having worked for the British security services in the 1950s and 1960s. Le Carre's first novel, Call For The Dead, was published in 1961. This book introduces the memorable character of George Smiley. His final novel, Silverview, was published posthumously in 2021. In between, he enjoyed an acclaimed writing career, with numerous novels being adapted for stage, radio, TV and film. Anyway, let's hear from a true Le Carre expert. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Richard. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, so, simple question to start with. Why do you collect John Le Carre books? Good question. To, to be honest with you, it wasn't Le Carre who was uh, the subject of my first book collecting. I, I always liked a collection on my shelf. I bought a few books. I maybe started with the Hardy Boys, and I just liked the way they looked on the shelf. Started with Agatha Christie paperbacks, graduated. And my first foray really into book collecting was uh, I was collecting something known as the Haycraft Queen Cornerstone List, which uh, if people are unfamiliar with, Howard Haycraft, the noted mystery uh, crit critic, and Ellery Queen got together and put uh, noted the 156 cornerstones of crime fiction. That really appealed to me because as a book collector, it's it's nice to have a finite number of items to collect. It's not just you collect forever. So I put that collection together uh, over a period of about 40 years. I subsequently sold that and started to concentrate more on Le Carre. I did that because he was the one author that really mixed magnificent language with espionage. And while there have been other authors that have done, or at least tried to do it that way, Le Carre remains really the master of the genre. Right. So you are a completist. I am a completist. And uh, I'll tell you, when I first started collecting Le Carre, which was pretty much 1979, I didn't know what the term completist meant. To me, when you started a book collection, you collected the author's works. Now, we're, I'm in the United States, so you would collect the author's first US uh, editions. And then if you really got crazy, you decided to also collect the British first editions. What happens though, and I'm sure happens with a lot of collectors you've spoken to, is you get into a phenomenon called collector's creep, which once you have the British and the English, you start to look for other ways to expand the collection. And of course, you start to look at proof copies, which honestly, I didn't have much knowledge about. Then I started to collect the variants because there was always something a little different about every issue, makes it a little more valuable. And then you start to expand a little bit. You realize that he wrote short stories, not a whole lot of them, but they were published in magazines throughout the years. 
and I tried to hunt them down. Then you realize that the man had also written many prefaces and forwards and introductions uh, for other authors, for other works, for artists that he was very friendly with. Uh, and then, of course, over the years, there's been a huge amount of critical studies written about him. So when you put it all together, if he would write a single title, you would end up trying to collect the British first, the American first, both sets of proofs, variants if there were any, special editions. One book then became maybe a dozen books that you were able to collect. And that's really what happens. Okay. So perhaps you can describe what's in your collection. Well, Lecrae himself has written, as you said, the first book was called For the Dead, and he went through Silverview, which was posthumously published. That gave him a total of 26 novels, plus an autobiography, The Pigeon Tunnel. And basically at this point, after all these years, I've got pretty much everything that I really am trying to collect. There are a few things that I don't have, um, which are some of the very, very early proofs. Those are the British and the American. They are unbelievably difficult to find. Some I've never seen in 45 years of collecting. One I can tell you is on your very A book site today. Um, I have passed on that one copy many, many times because of the price. And unfortunately, the price is now doubled, tripled, quadrupled. So the old axiom that you only regret the books you don't buy really holds in this case. Right. Yeah, I took a quick look at the prices too. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's astronomical. They're, they're quite high, aren't they now? They are they are quite high. And what's really happened is when I started collecting, I think you know every time you collect and you try to you come across some rarity, in your mind you say, "Can I afford this? Oh, this is a lot of money." Of course, as the years go by and then you see how, if you're lucky enough to see how the prices escalate, you realize really just how cheap you got in on these. Because I've seen, you know, if you go on Abe, you can see some of the first two books and they're $30,000. I can promise you I paid significantly less. But this is what's happened. Of course, his death did escalate prices. No question about that. Um, simple, easy to find books that I used to be able to find $50, $75, they've quintupled in price. Um, he was uh, someone who did sign up a lot of books, so it isn't a scarcity to find his books. But I think at my level, I was always taught that when putting together what you would call a significant collection is that condition really reigns supreme. Condition of the book always was my number one concern. You can certainly find, you could go to eight books today and you can certainly find of any title, 50, 100, and 150 copies. One could be 20,000, one can be $20. What's really the difference, other than of course being in a dust jacket and a first edition, is the condition. The more pristine, the more perfect, the more clean it is, obviously it's worth a whole lot more money. So that was always really my focus. I always wanted to buy the best possible copy that A, I could have that I could find and B, that I can afford. And over the years, um, I have replaced some copies. Sometimes I found a really nice one. 10 years later, I found a really nicer one. You know, if, if you're a real completist, you try to find the best copy. So I have upgraded a few times, not a lot. But to, the, to answer a question that I think a lot of people had, if I was starting today, to buy to put together a uh, Le Carre collection, 
I think I'd have a whole lot of problems doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the, what's the crown jewel in your collection? What are you most proud of? Well, I would say anyone that was looking at my collection would probably look at two or three different items and I'll do them in um, ascending order. I have um, a magnificent, uh, very rare proof of the spy who came in from the cold, not the American, which you can get, but of the British. That is a really, really scarce book. I've probably seen one, maybe two in 45 years. So that was, that was certainly a highlight. Um, the second thing that I have that I'm most proud about was about 10 years ago, I came across on a books. So I'll help plug you. Um, I came across a set of four Le Carre books. This was the Carla trilogy, which he's probably best known for, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, The Honorable Schoolboy, and Smiley's People. These were the American editions. And then I also picked up at the same time The Little Drummer Girl. What made these copies so fascinating and so rare is that Le Carre himself had not just signed the books, which you can find, they were all inscribed to a solitary person, the same person, not on the same day, but it seemed over a period of a few years. But what it makes it so interesting is for the first and pretty much the only time he goes into deep detail about each book, about the writing of the book, about his feelings about it. Um, it was really something I've never seen before. Uh, very, very difficult to find. And um, this is really a highly prized, uh, a highly prized possession. If you want, I can just, I can just write you, I can just let you know what the inscription, let's say, what the honorable schoolboy was like. You'd like to hear that? Yeah. All right. So he writes, the woman that he writes this to is um, someone called Laura. And if you're not familiar with the honorable schoolboy, this was the first time Le had really taken to the road. Most of the books he had written were about or centered around you know, the British Secret Service, MI5, MI6. The Honorable Schoolboy was the first time he took off for the Far East. And he did that because, as you read in some of his, um, in some of his notes, he just wanted to change the scenery. He wanted to continue the story, but bring it a little more local color. So to this Laura, he writes, quote, and for Laura, and may you never make such awful journeys. John Le Carre, October 6, 1998, Cornwall. Additionally, dear Laura, I took on the Far East in order to get myself a belated education. I'd never been there, never seen war. This book therefore changed me a great deal and modestly, I think for the better. Best, David, AKA John Le Carre. Those types of inscriptions are very, very rare in the Le Carre world. Did he sign as John or as David? Because John Le Carre is a pseudonym for Correct. David Cornwell. Correct. Cornwell from Cornwall. Correct. Yeah. Um, a good question. I would say 99% of the times he always signs John Le Carre. There are a few times, and you can tell that the person he's inscribing the, the book to is obviously within his inner circle, someone he knows personally, someone very close. You very rarely see that. Um, in only one case that I've ever seen, he signed a book, just David Cornwell. That's a real rarity. If he signs David at all, it's always John Le Carre, 
AKA David Cornwell. But um, just to see a book signed David Cornwell, very, very rare. Did you actually meet him? I believe you did. Yes, I did. And that would bring us to the, the prize in my collection. Um, what this was is in 1996, I believe it was, Le Carre himself came to New York City. And he did this when he was on a book signing tour for the Taylor of Panama, I believe. And one of the um, big literary venues in New York is the 92nd Street Y. It's a very famous place in New York. A lot of activity, a lot of lectures, symphonies, concerts, and stuff like that. I only found out about this three or four days before. And I realized very quickly that if I was ever going to meet him, this was going to be the moment. So what I did was um, I realized that if this was my only chance, I had to get Call for the Dead signed. I happened to have a magnificent, pristine, first British copy of A Call for the Dead. So and that's yellow in its dust jacket, right? With and, and, it's the, and Richard, it's the brightest yellow you've ever seen. It's like, it's like someone just bought it, put it in the drawer, didn't look at it for 50, 60 years. So I had the book. And in all the literature for the 92nd Street Y, they made it very clear that he would only be signing the Taylor of Panama. Copies of that book were going to be on sale and he would only sign that book, obviously to thwart people like me from bringing in anything else. Um, and as someone who pretty much lives within the lines, my first instinct would be, okay, well, you know, that's the way it is. But because it was clearly going to be the only time I'd ever have a chance to see him, and it was in the winter or the fall, and I was able to wear a jacket, I felt if I'm ever going to be a John le Carré spy, this was the moment that I had to utilize everything. So I hid the book under my jacket, and I got online, and I bought another copy of The Tale of, pa Tale of Panama so I could at least get on the signing line. And I have to tell you, I have a newfound respect for anyone who's in the spy business because just holding that book under my jacket, I think I was dripping wet. I've never been that nervous before. Okay. And as the line got closer and closer, um, I was nearly panic stricken. I really was. Um, it was very exciting. And just as I got to the front of the line, I was about four feet from him and his minder. The minder looked at me opened the Taylor of Panama. She kind of was about to beckon me forth. And I took the book out of my jacket. He looked up. He saw the book. I looked at him. She immediately said to me, I'm very sorry. And he quieted her. He beckoned me forth. He took a look at the book. And the first thing he said to me was, this copy is better than my copy, which I just loved. And he said, I'm guessing you went through all of this, so you want me to sign it. And I just said, it would just make my life. This is so important to me. And he just laughed and he wrote, you know, to Stephen, it was a, it was a wonderful moment. I hardly remember the rest of the day I was floating on air. But um, yeah, if you want to say what's the highlight of the collection, that's the one. Wow. What a story. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you go now? Can you continue collecting this author? 
Well, you know, that that's always the question. Does a collection have a natural um, end date? And unfortunately, he died a year or two ago. He does have a new book. He has a book of his letters uh, that his son has edited, which will be coming out, uh, I think, December. There seems to be some sort of a tell-all book from one of his so-called mistresses that's coming out. So, you know, with the letters book, maybe there's a special edition. Maybe there's an English edition I'll buy. I can add a few more copies. Um, that would probably be the natural um, expiration date. That doesn't mean I'll stop. Um, there are still a few things. There's always hope uh, that, you know, some of these proofs do make it to the market. They haven't in a long time, but, you know, hope is eternal. And then I think the beautiful part about this is you really don't know what you don't know. There always seems to be something to pop up. Uh, a menu, something came up recently, you know, a, mem a menu for a dinner they had upon one of the book's publication parties. Um, I saw that and I picked that up. So, yeah, you can pick up odd things. You can better copies. But there isn't any question about it that um, the days of big collecting are pretty much done with them. Okay. So in terms of um, spy novels, who else do you think could match Le Carre for quality of writing? Is there anyone else? Well, um, the spy genre has been blessed, I think, with many, many wonderful writers. Uh, some only write spy fiction, some write other fiction and then just dabble in it. Um, it's tough for me to say that anyone would be as good. Could you be as good in one book? Perhaps. Could you be good? Uh, could you be as uh, successful as he has over a course of a, a 25 book career? I really don't think so. If you looked at if the, if the question is, who are the other writers who are in the discussion? You could look back, of course, in history, the Eric Amblers and the Graham Greens uh, are wonderful, wonderful, talented writers, no question about it. But there has been um, a big renaissance in spy fiction, and I think there might be a number of reasons for that. But there are many, many really, really talented authors now working in the field. And just to name a few, um, Len Dayton, Alan First, Dan Vesperman. Uh, I love Joseph Cannon. Adam Brooks has written a wonderful uh, tr uh, trilogy. Uh, Paul Vittich, fabulous, fabulous books. So each of these authors has their strengths. Some of them construct fabulous plots. Some of them can develop really memorable characters. And a handful of them really can create great atmosphere. I think Le Carre's genius is that he was able to incorporate all of them in books. Plus, I think the thing that a lot of people miss is he's really just not a spy novelist. He's a fabulous novelist who just happens to write about spies. Right. His his language is so superior. The only person his plots are so labyrinthine. That's if you've read Tinker Taylor, you know that these are not easy digestible books. He makes people think. He makes people go to a dictionary. Um, few, few writers can match his language skills. To me, he's sort of, not in a humorous way, but he's sort of very, uh, very much the Charles Dickens of our time. 
He's a chronicler of what's happening in Europe over the last 50, 60 years. So I think that people who pigeonhole him merely as a spy novelist really miss the point. He's a fabulous novelist who just happens to write about spies and the human condition. Right. So what I remember is his description of processes, small bureaucratic administrative processes to do with spying and espionage. So where people are shuffling paperwork backwards and forths, where secretaries have key roles in putting something in a particular drawer or something or recording something. Um, I can't remember the name of the office. The, it had a particular name in London. The circus. Uh, the circus, that's it. The that appealed to me. I really enjoyed that bit. Do, do you like those descriptions of the the dull processes within spying? Well, I do. I do very much. And I think that's a very big, uh, I think that's a big component of his writing. I mean, let's face the facts. He wrote, he worked for both MI5 and MI6. So he was very well versed in what we would call the office drudgery. And when he first when he wrote his first book now his first two books were really detect more detective novels than anything else in 64 when he wrote the spider came in from the cold that was really the first to my mind anyway the first really pure spy novel so in 64 you had all the market had already seen 10 maybe 12 in fleming john uh, james bond books and these of course were the exaggerated daring do gunfights beautiful women martinis we all know the james bond books lecrae comes out and because he worked at mi5 and mi6 and understood that the business of spying was really no more than average people civil servants shuffling papers that's pretty much what spying was um and it was the development of just how these simple people warts and all their backstories shuffling the papers like you said one by one compiling evidence to finally solve something that's very appealing to me and i think he really wrote a lot of this to be sort of the anti ian fleming now um what what i what i like about this is as you said when you use the word mundane i really believe and i think you would agree that in the hands of a lesser wordsmith just talking about people shuffling paper and then going home for the weekend, the plots, the stories would just plot on aimlessly. But somehow he created this incredible universe all centered around the circus that to those to those who are into this, it's absolutely fascinating. And I, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's, um, it's a vital component of what he really does. Yeah, I love those bits. I agree. So the... The Cold War was was like a gift for um, absolutely, absolutely for him and many many for other him. Yeah, sure. and here we are now in a digital age, where I believe spying is probably very diff very different. Um, so where do you think where or where are spy novels going now, without the Cold War and in a digital age? Well, you know that that is the big question. There are. There are two, there are, look, the, the world of spy fiction, as a lot of people like to say, is a broad church. There are a number of different practitioners and they each have their lane. You could, you could say Le Carre was much more in the, um, you know, the nuts and bolts, characterization, uh, the plotting, things like that. 
you could have the Brad Thor people who it's all whiz bang technology, um, that whole angle. Um, there's room for both. And I think as tech develops and there are more shiny toys to spy on other people, I think authors, there are always going to be authors that are going to look to that. Now, I'll tell you that this con very conversation came up recently. I was at a, a dinner with some of the most noted spy writers working today. And this, this very topic came up. And, you know, there's no consensus on this, but I think a lot of the authors feel this, is that it's hard enough to come up with a fabulous plot, develop characters, uh, cook up the atmosphere, and make the story move forward. That's a hard job. And it's certainly really hard to do really well. If you now layer on a whole layer of technology, now the author has to really gear up and understand that. Now they can hire assistants and they can hire specialists, but it brings, um, it brings another layer to their writing. And I think a lot of authors are really not that comfortable with it. To wit, the historical spy novel is flourishing because in part a lot of people don't want to get into this whole technology thing now just to, just to show you you brought up the cold war clearly the cold war is ground zero um for spy novelists uh it's sexy all the black and white movies it's um you know it's big business that's a really sexy part it's casablanca stuff like that so within the last few years we have three of the absolute best spy writers writing today dan Festerman. Joseph Cannon, Paul Vittich, all writing historical spy novels, all set in the World War II or just post-World War II era, um, all centered in Berlin. There, there, is an, in, there is an inexhaustible supply of spy stories coming centered in Berlin. So it's not that the historical novel is going to go away. It's not. People love that era. Um, they love the characters. They love the genre. They like occupied France. Alan First has made an entire history. He's made an entire career of writing just about Paris, Poland, 1940s, 1930s. So that the historical spy novel is certainly thriving. But there's no question that with the digital age and social media, more and more authors are going to explore that side of the business. Right. I'm almost more comfortable with that historical aspect. I was watching like a, a one of the Jason Bourne films and a key aspect of him tracking down someone was Googling them, which doesn't really age well 10, you know, 15 it, years later. Exactly. So, you know, so th that's the point. Is it is it a sexy plot if two people are sitting in a cafe in Berlin and they're drinking coffee and they see a guy in a trench coat walking by? Or do you want to sit? be in front of your computer and Google where does someone live. It's that's what it is. And that's that's the dichotomy. But there are a number of people, perhaps younger readers, who are very much in tune with today's tech. And that's what they want. And their authors who are going to provide that. So um, there's been a BD, uh, sorry, a BBC adaptation of Tinker Tailor and a movie of Tinker Tailor. When did you have you seen either of them? Yes, I've seen I've seen both of them many many times, and um, do they match the your what was what was created in your imagination by the books? Well, yeah, I think you know I think 
These are two different mediums. One is a TV miniseries. That was the original Tink and Taylor that the BBC did. And the second was the recent movie that uh, starred Gary Oldman. I think that most people would agree that the BBC version uh, was the better one. And, and yeah, and, and, I, and I think the reason is clear. First of all, it's a very complex book. So you need the time to spin out the story. I think there was six episodes, seven, maybe something like that. So at least you had the time that you didn't have to snip and cut every extraneous thing because a two hour movie obviously can't do what the seven episode, you know, six, seven hour thing was. Both, both of them, I will say, featured a stellar who's who of British actors at the time. Um, the original miniseries, of course, is most highly prized and most highly noted that it was it featured um, Alec Guinness as George Smiley. And I think everyone who's seen them knows that that is the definitive portrayal of, of Smiley, who was Lecrae's greatest collection, um, concoction. Um, and he was so fabulous and so easily identify, identifiable as Smiley that even Lecrae himself said he stopped writing about him because when he started thinking about him, all he could think about was Guinness. So that miniseries set a tone the atmosphere was wonderful, uh, and I think it's I think it's pretty much highly prized as one of the best things the BBC has ever done. Indeed, I remember it well. I remember the first time it was on. It was it was compulsive viewing, and I was young at the time. Yeah, I mean it was it was compulsive viewing, and I've seen it. You know, I have the DVD, and I've seen it a number of times, and you always pick up something different, but it's just it's not glamorous. You know, that's not what he wrote about. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's subtle and it's shot in all you know dark grays and browns and it's just there's a brooding sense of atmosphere um few tv offerings have ever delivered i think like that one did so that you know that's a milestone there's no question when they decided to um do the movie uh i think there was a general skepticism because a how in the world was a two-hour movie going to better a six or seven-hour miniseries, especially that had Alec Guinness in it? Um, but, you know, the estate, you know, the Lecrae estate okayed it and went for it. And when they announced that it was Gary Oldman, um, you know, he's pretty much a chameleon. If you've seen five Gary Oldman movies, you've seen five totally different actors. Yeah. So I think everyone was sort of, or at least those, you know, who were really interested in this, um, I think everyone was just for the two years of shooting was waiting with bated breath to see if he could actually pull it off or is this just going to be the biggest disaster of all time. Um, I, I'd leave it to your um, to your listeners to, um, you, you know, to form their own opinion. I think the general consensus um, was uh, the movie was interesting. They made some very, very odd choices in changing parts of it, which would still bewildering to me, but whatever. Um, but I think what happened was, is that Oldman did a, I thought a great job. I thought yeah, he was I wonderful. Thought so too, yeah. yeah. I thought he did a wonderful job and far from falling on his face. I thought, I thought it was really, really good, different, updated, but really, really good. What I worried about was, is I know the story. I've read the book five times and I've, you know, and I've read, seen the miniseries two times. Was it possible that the uninitiated 
would come to a movie theater, sit down and understand the movie. That's what I thought about. And I really just got my answer a few days ago, a good friend that lives in my building. We happened to be talking about it. And he mentioned that it was on TV the other day and he watched it. And I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I really loved it, but I haven't the faintest idea of what the whole thing was about. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I expected. I mean, it's a very, very difficult story yeah. to follow. And then he proceeded to say, well, who was that guy? And why was he doing that? And then what was yeah. that? You know, so he enjoyed the he enjoyed the movie. He enjoyed the actors, but he he didn't get 30 percent of what was going on. Yeah, and then I had to, exactly. and then I had to explain it to him. Yeah. So, you know, so is, is a movie successful if people see it, like it and don't have any idea what's going on? I don't know. Yeah. You speak with such passion about this author. Are there other people like you in this world who have the same passion for the same author? Have you met anyone like that? Um, let's. Uh, hmm, good question. I know that there are a handful of other Le Carre collectors who no doubt have the same passion I do. I know that because I've missed out on some books and they tell me the other guy bought it. Right. Um, so yes, so I do know that. Um, with the exception of one other person, I don't really know anyone else who has this passion that I do. Um, the, the funny part about this is the only other person I know who has a burning passion for Craig is, uh, Sir Howard Stringer. Do you know him? No. Howard Stringer used to be the head of the BBC. He was the, I think the CEO of uh, Sony. Um, he is, he is a, um, he is a, a very prominent person. Um, a lovely person that I had the occasion to, um, be with once. And we, I knew that he had a wonderful Le Carre collection. And I had the opportunity to share a car with him going someplace. So in the brief time that I was with him, I was able to just ask him. And I said, you know, I know that you have a, um, you have a wonderful Le Carre collection. And he said, yeah, I do. And we talked about it for a little bit. And of course, any collector always wants to brag just a little bit about what they have because collecting is a bit of a solitary pursuit and if you have the opportunity to speak to someone who shares your passion sometimes you can't help yourself so you just kind of maybe cross the line and i said to him well yeah i, I i'm a big lecure collector also and he mentioned to me he said well what's what's the best thing you have and I related the story that I told you when he signed my call for the dead. And he said to me, that is so interesting. I have a copy, a beautiful copy that's also signed by him. And I said, that's amazing. When did you meet him and when did you get him to sign it? And he said to me, he signed it for me at lunch the other day. Now, here I am trying to impress him. And he's making it, he has lunch with him all the time, which leads me to believe that pretty much the first rule of being a collector is have some humility. Because, be humble. Be humble, because honestly, no matter how great you think your collection is, trust me, someone's got a better one. Indeed. 
All right then, Stephen, our final question. What book or books are you currently reading? What book or books am I currently reading? Um, let's just see. I just finished, uh, I think it's Portrait of, a, uh, of an Unknown Woman, which is Daniel Silver's new spy book, although it's really not a spy book. I don't only read spy fiction, by the way. I do you know, read quite a bit, just regular fiction. I finished that. Now I, I started on a what they're calling a rediscovered classic by Emmerich Pressburger, which is entitled The Glass Pearls. Seems to be about a, um, a Nazi who's on the run. Uh, and I will say that I recently finished two of the best books I've read in many, many years. So I'll just drop the names. Um, one was James Kestrel's Five Decembers, which uh, if you haven't read it, is just a fabulous book. It won an Edgar Award for the uh, best novel of the year. And uh, one of my favorite writers, Don Winslow, his latest book, uh, City on Fire, which is just, uh, just magnificent. So that's what I've been reading. Superb, thank you. All right, that's all we have time for today. Um, Thank you to Stephen Ritterman for joining us. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you, Richard. I've enjoyed it tremendously as well. Stephen is a John le Carre collector and his amazing collection spans more than 300 volumes. My name is Richard Davis and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast and we'll see you all again soon.